Thank you for tuning in today and welcome back to another episode of The Source. I'm your host Zan Raza. Today I'll be talking to Mital Yaniv, a former Israel Defense Force soldier turned into an anti-Zionist activist. She's also a filmmaker and author and her latest book is called Bloodlines. Mital, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. In this interview, I would like to explore your journey from being an Israeli Defense Force soldier turned into an anti-Zionist activist. It is a journey which you document in your book called Bloodlines. In the first part of your book, you talk about your family's history and how they survived the Holocaust, as well as their assimilation into an Israeli Zionist identity. Can you define for us first what you mean by Zionism and then elaborate on the first part of your book in more detail? Yes, thank you. Um, so Zionism is, is uh, a set of belief and of values that um, is predating the Holocaust, actually. Um, and in that set of beliefs and values, um, the notion that, an is, that a state should be established for Jewish people only, uh, that the only way that Jewish people will be safe is if there's going to be a state that is um, going to be um, only for Jews. And in the creation of, of, of that indoctrination of Zionism, um, there's also a way in which the, the fathers of Zionism, especially Theodore Herzl and others, uh, were also very, um, in a way, um, not religious, maybe even against religion, uh, against the Jewish religion, in a way. Um, and they created this secular, um, atheist almost um, identity and the notion that came with Zionism is that the only way for Jews to be safe is to militarize. So two things, we need a state and we need to militarize and through the creation of, of both of those needs, um, the fear that without them we will be annihilated has been there from, from the very beginning, which is um, when Zionists started um, moving to the land of Palestine um, and, and, and creating what we now know as Israel, the notion was everyone that's here, everyone that's already here needs to leave. And we also cannot separate the, the, you know, the trauma of the Holocaust with, with also what else got um, implemented there, which is white supremacy. So um, the ways that I'm looking at, at those Zionists that came from Europe, most of them Ashkenazi Jew, there was also a lot of superiority and whiteness embedded in them. And when they came to the land of Palestine, whether if it was Arab Jews or uh, Palestinians or um, Muslims or Christians, um, everyone who was not them was immediately became an enemy. And immediately became, if you were an Arab Jew, you can stay, but you're not going to make the decisions. We're not going to uh, put you um, in, in a place of power. We're not going to put you in a place of, of creating decisions because we see ourselves as, as better than you. And when you look at, at um, you know, at, at the history of Germany and, and at, at the way that um, when, when I was taught about Nazis, about the Nazi ideology, it's like you're creating an other, you're creating an enemy. And once you're creating that enemy, there's a threat that with if that enemy exists, I am threatened. And, you know, for me, it was like as an Israeli, the threat was like my grandmother's. If I don't protect my grandmas from this enemy that we've created, 
right? Then, then, um, then they will die. And in creating that enemy, you have to dehumanize them. Because if, if, you know, if, if Palestinians were not dehumanized in my um, upbringing, I wouldn't be able to fight them in a very, um, you know, we call these things wars and conflicts. It's, it's a one-sided um, genocidal attack. There's no like sides here. And when I look at, at the history of Germany, we can really see those uh, power struggles starting there of like one race deciding that the other one is a threat and therefore needs to be eliminated. Um, yeah, is that answering all of the parts of your question? Talk more about your family history. I mean, were there... Were... Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so my family... Um, I, I have um, a Sephardic side that um, is from Greece and from uh, Palestine, from Jerusalem. Um, and, and they, uh, my grandma from Greece moved to Israel, to Palestine, sorry, in the 30s. And both of my grandparents uh, from my maternal side were recruiter, recruiters for the Lehi, which is a known Jewish terrorist organization that was fighting both um, the Palestinian Arabs and the um, British of the land. Um, and then from my, my paternal side, uh, my family uh, is from Poland, from Krakow. Um, and they basically, my great grandma, who the first cycle of the book is written from her voice, uh, had a dream about the Holocaust a week before and woke up and packed a few things and took both of her kids and moved as close as she could to the Russian border. Uh, my uh, great-grandfather joined them a few weeks after. He had to ride bicycles because the trains were bombed already. Um, and they survived the war because they were in a Russian working camp, so not in a uh, German um, death camp. And after the survivor of that horrendous uh, situation of the Russian camp, they were slowly making their way into, you know, kinds of freedom, um, which never felt free, but different kinds, uh, working in kolkhoses for extremely racist uh, musters and um, suffering in many different ways until they were allowed to go back to Poland. And when they went back to Poland, they also were not, did not feel, um, like they were wanted. Um, but the four of them, so my great grandma, my great grandfather, and and um my grandma and my great uncle survived. And then my grandfather is the only survivor of um his family. Everyone else um was murdered in Treblinka, and um he survived because he was also in Russia studying. And my grandparents met in Poland after the war, had my father um, very quickly after. And I can really trace the way that, that that trauma of what happened to them had no room to um, to heal because the, the need to escape never left them. And then they were given um, the offer of um, Zionism, which my grandfather was already through Ashramaritza year, was already kind of involved with. And this notion of like, here's a state, come live here. And the only thing we need to do is make soldiers and then we'll be fine here. And there was never um, a notion of like, who else lives there? 
What does it mean to kick them out? What does it mean to murder them? What does it mean to massacre them in order for us to have this moment of safety? And their trauma really became um, one of the many traumas that have created um, the land of Israel as we know it today. There's also many other traumas that happen in relation to um, the Nazis as well um, in different Arab um, countries in the Middle East uh, where basically um, Jews were expelled for different reasons. Um, so this moment of Nakba, uh, the catastrophe, which is the creation of the state of Israel and, and the massacre of, of hundreds of thousands of um, people and, and the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, um, really it is like a way where I can really trace how this untended trauma of the Holocaust and other traumas that were in relation to to Nazi ideology and Holocaust have created this need for for an army. And what we're seeing today is is that need on steroids. So the the victimhood, the fear, um and and the way in which we think we can, you know, even that notion of calling the Israeli defense forces, right? It, it's like like that 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 statement that we, constantly are hearing Israel has a right to defend itself like everyone has a right to defend itself but for what in what cost right but but the notion that we think that we are allowed to defend ourselves by any means necessary I trace that to that survivor mentality and and the way that that never got tended and I I like don't get me wrong like I don't really blame anyone in the cycle. I don't blame Nazi Germany for creating this trauma. And I don't blame my ancestors for not tending to that trauma. But I think it's time to do that now. Um, blaming people, I don't think that's the, the, the way forward. But I do want to invite my ancestors, people who have lineages like mine that have survived the Holocaust, and lineages in Germany that are the descendants of those um of those lineages to really do the, the tending and the work to heal that, because that is the only way we move forward. What we're seeing today in Germany, the overcompensating of, of support of Israel, is, is that is moving from blame and shame and guilt and unchecked whiteness. Like that's what we're seeing right now. If we actually take the time to heal those wounds, to really come to terms and forgive the, the, the Nazi grandparents, that people in Germany have, if, if we really like take that time to make those amends and we take times as, as what we say Israelis today to make those amends, then there's like a way in which this doesn't continues to cycle on, which is what we're seeing right now. So my, um, just to finish your question, my grandparents um, and uh, my great grandparents moved to the state of Israel um, uh, in 49 or 50. And um, as soon as they arrived, uh, there were Ashkenazi Jews, so they received privileges that Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews were not receiving. Um, and they slowly um, were able to find jobs and get housing. Uh, nothing, you know, nothing in the ways that they were used to, but they were giving all these resources. And they had another son, um, on the land and that son, my uncle died as a soldier in Yom Kippur war. Um, and, and that is really, I think a moment when I look back of like, this is the cost of, of this identity you placed on yourself. And this is the cost of, of 
turning away from Judaism, because that's a, another thing. Like I was raised very Israeli and very not uh, within the Jewish religion. And I returned to my Sephardic and Ashkenazi lines as, as a healing practice, because when you look at Judaism and when you look at Zionism, those two systems of values do not match. The most holy value in Judaism, in whatever lineage you're looking in, is saving lives. And we say that saving one life is as if you've saved the whole world. So we see a single life as a whole world. And right now what we're seeing in Gaza, every number that is being added to this list of, of extreme genocide where we're above 30,000 worlds that have been destroyed. So in Judaism, you're, you learn to see each one of those beings as a whole world. And the fact that we are committing this as Jews, or this is being committed for Jews, I think that is uh, that statement of not in our name that we see Jews all over the world saying, because this is not actually Judaism, this is Zionism. And with Zionism on the land of Palestine, there will never be a free Palestine. So that's why also the book is very much dedicated to bringing the Israeli identity and state to a loving and caring death. Let us move to the second part of your book, which deals with what you call, quote, indoctrination and brainwashing, unquote, in the Israeli army. Uh, talk about the environment that you grew up in. What led you to join the uh, Air Force and the culture you experienced there? Yeah, so um, it's mandatory to join the army in Israel when you're 18. Um, and that indoctrination, I, you know, when I look back at it, I really believe it starts in the womb. It's in the womb. And it starts with those untended traumas also that, that live in the womb and in the DNA. And this notion that, you know, I really feel that when I left my mother's body, uh, army uh, uniform got stitched on my body immediately. Because to raise soldiers, what we're seeing right now, that is not training that starts when you're 18 to be able to do what you're doing right now. That's training that starts in the womb. To be able to look at an entire people as not human, that is not training that you can do in a year, in two years, in three years. That is like generational training. So I really see how, you know, I have also a pretty um, unique family in, in their involvement. Um, I have um, extremely Zionistic right wing. My dad is an Air Force commander. My great uncle is a very famous Mossad agent. I have a fallen soldier in my um, in my lineage. My grandparents are Lehi recruiter. So it's also like a very specific kind of um, militarization that they took on. Um, but even without that, it's an entire society. So it's 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 in the breath milk. It's in what you learn in in school in kindergarten. It's how we play as children. We play in the army boots of our of our uncles and fathers. We we there are tanks, like literally tanks from different um, types of of moment in the history of Israel that are left for the children to play in. I don't know an Israeli child who didn't find themselves playing inside a real army tank, and that's play. So when you have that that way of 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 really. Um, indoctrinating uh, what should become of you, which is this like heroic soldier. And then you also offer the trauma. So I was um, raised with um, seeing images from the Holocaust, 
from such a young age and such extreme photos and and it was um really uh, you know it, it it's like unconscious but it's really manipulative to be like if you don't become this soldier this is what's going to happen to the people you love and and this is what's going to um this is the only way to 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 stay alive so when you traumatize a child with um with images and then also are being raised by by elders that have not taken care of their trauma and that trauma is oozing from their bodies in different ways and the only way you tell that child that you can um survive this is if you become this soldier then everything else just like fits into that um indoctrination and it's through love that's really where it gets tricky because it's really through through love and and family love that it's really get embedded in you when you return from the army in your uniform and your grandparents hug you you have never received that kind of hug from them before um and and that's that's real in in like especially a child uh you know need a nervous system um so so yeah so i um was raised in that way and i was 18 it was time for me to um join the army and uh, because my dad was in the Air Force, uh, I was um, recruited to the Air Force as well. It's like it's called second generation, it's supposed to be a perk. Um, and after six months, I had like a course, I had different types of training. And um, yeah, I was stationed in a base. And um, after six months, uh, my base from Tel Aviv moved to the south part of Israel. And I was told to, you know, send planes to fuel planes, which was something that was a part of my routine job to send planes and fuel planes. Uh, and those planes that I fueled in the air with other planes uh, or sent to fuel uh, went into Gaza. Um, and um, I'm assuming they bombed Gaza. Um, and yeah, when after that mission, I... Um, I puked all the way back. I remember that very, um, very um, viscerally. And then the next day I was supposed to go to the base and I had my first panic attack. And it was um, in the car, my dad was driving me in um, and I just really lost control. So like kicking and screaming and, and breaking things in the car and then breaking myself and couldn't enter the base. Uh, which means that I also um, didn't show up to my shift, which is punishable. Um, and the next day I had to come stand trial. And uh, I was grounded to the base. I was offered um, either to be on kitchen duty or to guard the base. Um, and I knew that if I was... So I was in the job that I did. I didn't need to uh, have a... Um, weapons on me I just had like my uniform I um in basic training I had to um shoot like in a shooting range once and and that left a trauma that I'm still like trying to undo um but when I was offered to guard the base that would have meant that I would have to carry a rifle um for those three weeks and everyone really wanted me to choose that because it felt like there's like some, like you're like I would I will save face a little bit if I choose that job 
and not the kitchen duty job. And I decided to choose the kitchen duty. I didn't really understand why. It just felt like something that I needed to do. And then in those three weeks, I really understood that I need to leave the army, like that there's no way that I'm staying here. My body is saying no. And because of how I was raised, knowing that made me want to take my life. So I knew that if there's going to be a rifle on me, I will shoot myself, um, which is why I chose the kitchen duty. And yeah, there was something about, you know, when you're being loved into your role in life, which to me was to be a soldier that will protect my grandparents. Um, and then that moment breaks apart when you're still very young. I was 18. Um, that is sometimes something you can't come back from because what else is left? I didn't know anything else. Um, so I am, you know, I say thank you every day to to the spirits and the beings that that hold me and the miracle that that made me move through that and stay alive and and find a whole new way of life. So I think, you know, one thing that I didn't mention in the beginning, um, that that identity, that soldier identity, that Israeli identity, again, because it's through love, really gives you a sense of belonging. Um, that again, as a child, you really need. As, as a human being, you really need. And it's false belonging because that sense of belonging has everything to do with, with the destruction of, of life um, that is not our own, but by, but by destructing Palestinian life, we are killing ourselves because we are unable to, to love in a real way. We're unable to feel belonging in a real way. We are stuck in a fear and victimhood cycle uh, that we can't shake off. Um, so to find true belonging, to find true love, um, is, is something that, that, that breakage from the army allowed me to be in. And that is also the reason why I'm able to sit with you today and speak about all of this. And it's, it's coming from a place of like, I am liberating myself so that I can stand for the liberation of other people. In, in my case, I'm standing fully for the liberation of the Palestinian people, um, and other, you know, none of us are free until all of us are free. Like that is very true. Um, and I want my people, what we would call it Israeli people, to feel that liberation in themselves, to know that they can feel love, that they can be in touch with their hearts, that true belonging is not in army, that true safety is not in army and statehood, that none of those things are keeping us safe. No, please continue. I would like to also find out uh, what led you uh, to your journey to become somebody who stands up against uh, Zionism. Uh, usually I would assume that somebody such as yourself um, would have gotten very negative feedback from family, friends and society. And um, also the guilt trip might have led you into depression or falling into a black hole. How did you end up there? I mean, I can also imagine people watching it in Germany and um, elsewhere that are following the mainstream perspective that um, there might be a notion where they call you a self-hating Jew. So how would you uh, describe uh, your journey towards anti-Zionism? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I had a conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate and the same uh, question came about a self-hating Jew. And 
I am actually like a, a self-loving Jew for the first time in my life because I stand as an anti-Zionist. Um, so, so it's interesting that those things um, um, get so uh, conflated with each other. Because as I said earlier, also like coming back to Judaism as a healing practice is eliminating Zionism from my being because they do not match. They cannot coexist actually in like the true um, values of Judaism. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I am very um, moved by the opportunity to speak with a German um, audience. Um, and I am moved because um, what I'm seeing right now is is uh and i'm not saying this with judgment actually i'm saying it with a lot of love and as a as a fellow white person as well um but what i'm seeing right now is is guilt and shame on steroids from germany um and and instead of of taking care of what was done to you that created the monstrosity that we know as nazi germany instead of taking care of that you are recreating that in us by supporting what we're doing right now. So this cycle can continue, right? Um, but but we as people who were born into these lineages must end this cycle. And a way to end this cycle is to really face our biggest fears and our biggest, um, the things that really like, we're indoctrinated into, um, if I don't have that, I will be killed. Let's look at that. I don't know exactly. I'm not German. I'm not, I don't live in Germany. I'm not German. I don't know what are those things. I don't know what are those deepest fears that have created Nazi Germany. But I know it has to do something with, with the need for belonging, for love, and for safety. None of those things will ever be established to any people around the world with militarization and statehood and borders, none of it. Um, th that empire is, is failing. So in this moment, I really wanna invite, um, in the same way that I had to like really sit with my own, as you said, depression, undoing all of that and really find new ways to, to be in touch with my heart and love like I love today in ways that I didn't even know that are possible. I feel belonging today to the earth as like, you know, I am a part of everything that is around me, this air, the sun, the earth, the water, like where it, it's the birds, like I'm able to hear bird songs. When I was in the army, the birds were, were the names that they gave the planes, you know? So there's like a, a new way to reconnect to the cycles that are here, that that is true belonging. So I really, um, I feel really cold in the same way that, you know, I, our biggest fear as a people is, is that, you know, we would be pushed into the sea. That is like the biggest fear that as Israelis we hold. In a conversation I had yesterday with um, Dr. Bayo Kumalafe, I had that insight to say, what if we actually stand on the sea and give ourselves to the sea? What do we, if we actually like jump in? Like that's the biggest fear. So what if we do it and see what happens next? But in order for us to do it, in order for us to achieve that level of healing, and I'm calling it healing. I want my people healed. What we're seeing right now is illness. Um, I want them healed. So for us to do that, 
the world needs to seize us. The ceasefire is 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 also for us to to just seize so that we can heal. And and I don't know what that looks like, and I won't know until we get there. But I need Germany to help me get there by stopping. You can't fund us to keep doing this because you feel guilty and shamed that that you create you you did create this in some way. Yeah, like that is a part, but there's no separation here, right? So if we live in a world without borders, I forgive you. My ancestors forgive you. We we are doing this work to forgive you. We're okay. But now please help us. <laughs> Like there, there's a duty here. There's like, you know, we, we joined ourselves through that trauma and we need to heal it together. So find a way to forgive yourselves. I, I will work for the rest of my life to forgive myself for sending those planes into Gaza. That is my job. And I, at, the, at the same time, I'm, I'm working to forgive the, the Nazi officers that wanted to kill my, that if they killed my family, I wouldn't even be here today, right? So like there's different levels of forgiveness and, and loving the people that the world tells us to hate is the biggest medicine. Because that is, we are again, none of us are free until all of us are free. So I really want to invite in the same way that I am wanting my people to jump into the sea. I want the German lineages to understand what is that sea for them? What is your biggest fear? And like, here are my hands. I'm holding it with you. Let's jump in there. Let's stop this madness. Let's like stop this cycle of violence. Yeah, let us talk about um, the third and final part of your book, which focuses on the current situation. Uh, let me just recap the situation for our viewers uh, that have been following, not following the news uh, at the moment. So Israel's assault has killed around 27,800 Palestinians so far and severely wounded around 67,000. According to recent reports, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ordered the military to expand its operation in the southern Gaza town of Rafah, where at least a million people who fled the north have sought refuge. The White House announced uh, as well that it would not support any major operations in Rafah without due consideration for the refugees there. There also seems to be no ceasefire in sight, uh, as Benjamin Netanyahu rejected Hamas's proposal, stating it is delusional while Hamas responded by saying that they believe Netanyahu, Netanyahu intends to pursue, the, pursue conflict in the region. Um, can you talk about the third chapter of your book, um, as well as the current situation? Do you think um, there is um, peace in sight? Because even though I am totally supportive of what you're saying, I don't think the people who are in power and calling the shots will even take the first step to even reflect on themselves and find that inner healing that is so much needed. Um, what can be done outside of that to stop this uh, cycle of violence and the current situation which is spiraling out of control? I don't have any hope that Israel will stop by itself. We're not, we're not close to that. We're not going to get there. So the world needs to make us stop. Um, how the world does that um, the only way that I know within the system that we have is people, po people power, um, supporting the BDS movement, um, creating more and more sanctions on Israel. Um, and that is really where, where we need Germany. We need Germany to like shake off whatever is, is this like, again, shame and guilt that is being moved there and, and 
find a way to make your government to to make this stop. We're, I mean, I, I am living in the United States and, and we're trying to do the same here. Um, but once the funding will stop, Israel cannot afford, Israel cannot afford the genocide. Israel cannot afford also the occupation. So the first thing that needs to happen is for that funding to stop. And, and you know, this, this moment of also not funding UNRWA anymore um, is also a moment that, that, is really showing what is actually at play here. Um, and all those funds that are going to the Israeli bombs right now should go to Palestinians' well-being, whether it's in the land of Palestine or all over the world, and for the right of return to happen. Um, so I really want to invite everyone to find a way to care about this. Um, and... I don't know what that means for every single person, but find, you know, so as you said, the end of the book, I, I wrote the majority of Bloodlines in 2021 and, and it was about to get published now in this latest cycle of genocide. Um, I had the opportunity to write this moment into the end and I'm writing there, um, I'm basically speaking about this moment in November before it went to print and the book itself. Um, so the majority of the book is a list of names of uh, Palestinians who have been uh, martyred by the Israeli army um, and settlers in the West Bank um, from October 7th. And at the time that we sent it to print, there were about 6,000 names but there, we also knew that there is closer to 10,000 um, people who have been murdered already. So there's names and then just I placed a sign for each name, each world that I don't know the name of yet. And that count is continuing on uh, Bloodlines book uh, website. Um, and I do that as, as, a, as a practice of care. Again, each one of those names known or unknown to me, each one of those numbers um is a whole world and i want to learn that entire world so if you are not yet finding a way to care about this i want to invite you to find one story one child's image like this is ge this genocide is live on instagram like find one thing you can care about and and walk with it for a day for a week Find a way to care, and then from that caring, let your heart get broken, because this is the times we're in. We're in a heartbreak moment. Let your heart get broken, and then let it broken. Let it get broken more, and then find the action that is right for you. And that action might be a hunger strike. That action might be a protest. That action might be writing a poem. That action might be closing a university. Whatever it is. Find the thing, may it be something we have not seen yet. And 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 find find the way to break open more. Uh, that is something that I am doing daily, finding ways to break open more so that I have the capacity to hold this and find my movement from that place and find my voice from that place. Uh, to my last question, there's this perception in Germany, which is imported from uh, the Israeli state, 
that um, this is a war, religious war, that if Israel does not defend itself, um, all the Arab nations will basically devour it. Um, also, there's this perception that all Jews are united uh, against, uh, for, behind Israel. Um, can you talk about if there are other dissenters, networks um, uh, that have left the army, and also talk about organizations uh, that are that have Jews within them that are also uh, in line with what you uh, stated in this interview? Yeah, so I don't know what um, is the level of uh, propaganda in Germany and what the news is is telling you about. I know that in Israel, the news is lying to the people every day. So I also just want to um, invite people to find other ways to receive information. Like the the don't depend on your state. It's I mean, it's probably lying to you. So find other ways to find that information. And that's really your responsibility. If you're not, um, if you're not um, in a land that is being under attack and genocide right now, your job is to find ways to understand what's happening there for you. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, that, that consensus that all Jews need Israel is, is the biggest lie of it all. Because as we've seen all over the world, um, organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, are shutting things down day after day, city after city. Uh, we have been all over the United States, in different places in Europe, um, constantly saying, not in our name, constantly saying the occupation, the genocide might must end, constantly saying, don't give Israel money constantly trying to disturb business as usual to to make our representative understand that the state of Israel is not um, keeping us safe, is not making us feel belonging. It's actually the state of Israel is making Jews all over the world not safe. Period. End of sentence. Um, and we're trying to say this over and over again. I can say as an Israeli that um, Zionist Jews in the United States and all over the world that are dependent on the state of Israel is actually killing us. And I want you to sit with that if that is you. If you are a Zionist Jew living outside of Israel that depends on the state of Israel, you are killing the people you think that are keeping you safe. So I also want to invite you to just like find that, like what's that about? Yeah. And then um, there is an organization that I'm a part of as well called Chorish, uh, which is um, in the United States and it's for anti-Zionist Israelis. So the whole organization is made out of Israelis. We speak Hebrew um, and, and we're anti-Zionist. We don't believe that the state of Israel should exist. Um, so I, and not to mention that there's also organization within Israel that are fighting what's happening right now. And then, you know, I also want to ask the question, I see ourselves as, as Israelis, as the oppressors right now, right? So why is it that we need to hear from the oppressor to believe the oppressed, right? Um, I can sit here and, and name Jewish historian and Israeli historians and um, and ex IDF soldiers and organizers 
that are Jewish and Israeli that will tell you what I just said. And you might believe them more. But I want to invite everyone to listen to Palestinian voices because they have been under occupation for over 75 years. They have been living with apartheid for over 75 years. So why is it that hearing from me as an ex-Israeli soldier is more important than hearing to someone that has been oppressed so severely, that is trying to maintain a life in Gaza, that has been under severe militarization, lockdown of the air, of the sea, of the earth, under the earth, for 15 years, 19 years now? Why is hearing from me about that feels more important? Um, so I also really want to take this opportunity to, yes, find the, the movements that you want to support. And also let's listen to the people on the land that are, that are under the attack. Mital Yaniv, filmmaker, author, and activist. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in today. Please don't forget to join our alternative channels on Rumble, Telegram, and a podcast called Podbean. YouTube, which is owned by Google, can shadow ban and censor us at any time. So we are asking all of viewers to join today because if that day comes, we won't be able to reach you with this message. So please visit the uh, description of this video, visit the links and join these platforms. Also, if you're watching our videos regularly, make sure to take into account that there's an entire team working behind the scenes from camera, light, audio, video, correction, translation, voiceover. If all of 145,000 subscribers just become a monthly donor today via Patreon, Better Place or Bank Account, we will be able to cover our costs for the next four to five years. Thank you very much and I'll see you next time.